be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaVariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon. Uh, welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. This is a pre-recorded segment, so we won't be taking any call-ins this, at this point in time unless somebody is fortuitously listening, which I don't think we can, we can count on. Uh, I am very pleased today to have uh, Joe Watkins with me, Dr. Joe Watkins, who is probably one of the foremost voices on indigenous affairs and Native American affairs in archaeology. Uh, Joe Watkins is the director of Native American studies at the University of Oklahoma, has been involved in archaeology for more than 40 years. Before moving to Oklahoma, he was an associate professor of anthropology at the University of New Mexico. Uh, Joe is also the past chair of the Committee on Ethics of the American Anthropological Association, past chairman of the Committee of Native American Issues of the Register for Professional Archaeologists. He's a member of the Indigenous Advisory Committee of the Fifth World Archaeological Congress and a member of the World Archaeological Committee Executive Board. Joe's uh, seminal book, Indigenous Archaeology, American Indian Values and Scientific Practice, is one of the major works uh, on Native American uh, contributions and involvement in the archaeological process as it works its way now more intricately and more significantly through the legal system in North America. And he has recently written a book with Carol Ellick, uh, called the Anthropology Graduate's Guide from School to Career, a student-oriented publication to help anthropo anthropology students transition from school to the workforce. So Joe's reach is extensive. Uh, I'm dating myself and Joe Watkins a bit when I tell you I probably met him for the first time about 30 years ago. We've been involved on a number of committees together, and Joe has subsequently uh, catapulted into being one of the foremost representatives and voices for Native American issues in archaeology, and that is the theme of today's show. Joe, I'm thrilled to have you here. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I'm very honored and very glad to, to be here. It's a wonderful uh, opportunity to talk to people. 
I think it's 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 great to have you, Joe. Why don't you tell us a little bit of your background and uh, the, as sort of a segue into the issues that are critical for you and for the profession, for that matter, in contemporary archaeology. Why don't you talk us to us a little bit about your background? Sure. Um, as, as you said earlier, I've been doing archaeology for more than forty years now. Um, I'm a member of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. My father was a uh, a hundred percent Choctaw Indian. My mother, we used to joke, was a full-blood American mongrel. That is, she was <laughs> French and Irish and of questionable background on both her mother's and father's side. So um, being an American Indian and growing up in Oklahoma, was, there were some really good things and some bad things about it. But um, I did my first archaeological survey in 1968, but, oh, when I was about 10 years old, um, I found a, an archaic projectile point on my family homestead down in southeast Oklahoma. I was walking with my grandmother and showed it to her, and my grandmother didn't speak English, but she let my cousin know that she felt that Although that history didn't belong to us as Choctaw people, it belonged to the people who had lived there before. She felt it was extremely important that we not let that unwritten history get lost. Um, so initially at that time, I wanted to be a paleontologist, and so I kind of eh, kept that idea in the back of my head until about uh, six or seven years later when I got interested in archaeology, knew that I would never really get to China to excavate dinosaur fossils, but that, you know, I focused on archaeology, working with the the history and unwritten history of American Indians here in the United States. So uh, that was my beginning. Then, now, this is the grandmother on your father's side, your paternal grandmother who didn't speak any English. Exactly, exactly. Wow. She She'd still lived on the, the family homestead that was allotted to her and her grandfather in, under the Dawes Commission of 1902. So, and how was that relationship? You, you were very close to her? Um, I was, my brother and sister and I spent all of our summers down there until we were 14 or 15. Uh, so I got to spend a lot of time with her. We would go walking. We would talk. We went out hunting and fishing. She was not really a nice woman. She was a very stern uh, grandmother, but I did learn a lot about traditional Choctaw medicines and, and history and, and learned some stories from my uncle uh, because of that. So. You know, I, being the youngest, I couldn't run as fast as my brother and sister, so I had to stay around with the, the older folks until I could escape. So, And how much of an inspiration was that for your getting into tradition and heritage studies, and how did she affect you in terms of even thinking and approaches and that sort of thing? Well, it was a, a tremendous, tremendous influence because she kept telling me stories that were, were being lost. She talked about the, the little people among the Choctaw. Uh, she talked about the importance of tradition and knowledge. But she also instilled the idea that even though tradition was important, it was also necessary to, to be a part of contemporary society. So she sort of helped set the stage for me to be 
And sort of a mixture of both worlds, both the tradition and the modern, the uh, the past and the present. So, and with all the stories she told me, it kind of made me really want to know more and more about heritage, not only here in the United States, but also in New Zealand and uh, in Australia. So it it set the stage for my my focus, I guess, throughout my anthropological and archaeological career. So you started out at OU, at, at Oklahoma Univers- University of Oklahoma? Yes, I did. And it's interesting. I started here in September of 1969, and it just immediately happened that Vine Deloria Jr. Uh, published excerpts of his book, Custer Died for Your Sins, in Playboy magazine in August of 1969. So. I did read Playboy for the articles. I know a lot of clearly, people don't believe clearly. that. <laughs> right. And, um, but it was funny, him talking about how the anthropologists had failed American Indians, and here I was going to school trying to get a degree in archaeology and anthropology. So, again, there's that ongoing conflict about, well, tradition or the academy, and could I do do well in both worlds by trying to sort of act as a liaison between the two. So it it led to some, some sleepless nights and lots of points of discussion, especially with my archaeology professors. And, and that's that's unique because I would imagine, Joe, that at this time you would have clearly have been the only Native American student in the program, right? I mean, I can't imagine there were any others. There, there weren't any others in archaeology. There were a couple right. of people in you know, social anthropology or linguistics, but none here in archaeology. I think most of the archaeology professors thought that if I were getting a degree in archaeology, then obviously I must be into archaeology to the point that I didn't believe in any of the protesters who, you know, about none of the AIM people. It must not have been, you know, I guess they figured if I was going to be an archaeologist, then I definitely didn't believe the same way AIM people did, that the Indians should control archaeology, but that it should continue to be an academic discourse or an academic discipline. So, you know, I tried to stay in the middle and you know, it, in some regards, it was a, a very schizophrenic time. Well, it had to be because at that point in time, Native American awareness, certainly in terms of heritage and antiquity, was was not even on the radar. I mean, AIM was was a totally different movement, but this wasn't on the radar at that time, was it? It, it really wasn't. I I when I I did my dissertation and I looked at all the the Native American. Um, newspapers at the time. And occasionally from about 1968 till about 1970s, early 71, anything that talked about um, early history in North America were just little fillers, about an inch or two talking about the discovery of Ozette uh, in the Northwest Coast, or maybe some questions about the early peopling of the New World. But there wasn't any true political or politicization of archaeology until about 19, late 1970s, early 1971, and that's when it really exploded. 
When you were going through in those early days, because I go back to that time as well, how, what, did you have any relationship with the AIM movement at all, the American Indian movement? No, it, it really wasn't large here in Oklahoma. Um, it, it really started in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Then it spread to a lot of other big cities. Mostly it was looking at um, violence against American Indians and, and some of the disparate numbers of alcoholism and health care. Here in Oklahoma, things were relatively calm, although once the protests against the Vietnam War really escalated, I think a lot of American Indian groups tried to to tie into that. Uh, there were a few small events here in Oklahoma, but nothing really organized to the extent of what happened in, say, Los Angeles or Denver or Minneapolis-St. Paul. So it was relatively quiet here, organized primarily around health care and access to health care for urban Indians. In other words, contemporary issues. Exactly, exactly. It was the contemporary living uh, problems that American Indians were facing that were the focus here. And so, and, and, that, and you were sort of starting to sort of develop your own perspectives on basically who you were and how you could integrate your studies and your worldview and your, your heritage, for, for yeah. that matter, into this evolving picture. So uh, that's really quite a challenge for somebody just starting out. <laughs> Yes, it was. And there really were no role models. There, there weren't, at that time, anyone who openly identified as, as American Indian uh, with a Ph.D. in archaeology. There, there were a few in anthropology, uh, a couple with MAs, uh, Smokey Moore and of the National Park Service and Ed Ladd out at Zuni. Those were about the only two that I knew at the time that had an M.A. in archaeology, and were doing any sort of archaeology. So I really felt like I was uh, sort of out there alone trying to find a pathway in a rainforest in the middle of a downpour. <laughs> right. Uh, we're going to take a break and come right back and talk to Joe Watkins, who, as I said before, is one of the leading proponents of Native American presence in the archaeological world as it assumes a higher profile, and we'll be back after these words. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Voice America Variety Channel presents a program like no other for those in the field and interested in the field of security and training. 
On America's Front Lines of Crime and War with Victory Defense Consulting, hosted by J.J. Sutton. Here, listeners are learning about tactical skills and practices that support efficient, smarter, and more enduring skills. You will receive the most up-to-date information about the security and training industry with detailed discussions and select special guests each week. Tune in to On America's Front Lines of Crime and War, Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune into Around the World in a Glass, presented by Sportsman's. We're a show all about wine, spirits, and other beverages. Your host, Kimber Stonehouse, is a professional expert and wine enthusiast. Each week, we'll focus on a different region of the world, discuss wines and other beverages, talk about some of the top restaurants in the region, and what to pair with which wine. Just listening could make you almost an expert. Around the World in a Glass is heard live every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. And this is Joe Schildenrein back with a segment on Native American involvement in the archaeological community and, and its increasing role in the legal system of, uh, of archaeology and historic preservation in North America. I am speaking to and interviewing Dr. Joe Watkins, who is probably the leading advocate in North America for Native American affairs. And we were discussing his personal uh, development as an archaeologist with a Native American consciousness in the late 60s and early 70s at a time when archaeology and uh, Native American involvement in archaeology was in a very, very nascent form. Joe, why don't you pick it up and tell us how you developed your PhD and how your consciousness of being a Native American and what that meant to your uh, potential future as a professional, how that evolved. Sure. Well, I, I completed my bachelor's degree here at the University of Oklahoma in 1973 and was lucky to be accepted uh, to the Ph.D. program at Southern Methodist University in Dallas. Um, I don't think I was really prepared for the academic uh, rigor at SMU, and I, I would say that I was lucky to have been supported by Fred Windorf, Joel Shiner, and Ron Wetherington, Otherwise, I probably would have flunked out my first semester there. And it wasn't really from, from lack of intelligence, maybe. I think it was just my perspective on archaeology was completely different than the, the MAPHD level of archaeology. I might mention that that was a very sophisticated program at that time. It, the, they had a tremendous program in the, the old world, North Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa. They were really expanding in the Mesoamerican area. North American archaeology was it was it was very competitive, and I loved it. Um, I got down there, ran into Bruce Bradley, who I'd met the previous year in France, 
and really started, I just dove into experimental archaeology. And in many ways, experimental archaeology was sort of a savior to me, because that way I could do archaeology without having to excavate American Indian human remains or American Indian archaeological sites. And was that so becoming I, a conflict for you or no? It was. It was. Because, um, you know, from 1971 through 1973, AIM got heavily involved in archaeology. They, they took over digs in Minnesota. They destroyed field notes. They backfilled trenches. They were protesting in Los Angeles about the display of human remains. They were calling archaeologists uh, cultural vultures because they appeared that archaeologists were stealing the, the heritage of American Indian past. So it was, at a time, it was almost easier for me to do a form of archaeology without having to do dirt archaeology. So you, how, how, would, how did you feel at the time? How, were you conflicted? Was, was there a lot of uh, contradiction in there for you, or, and, and, and that would cause you to stay back a little bit and, and move in a different direction? Or, I mean, that's a lot to deal with. It, it was, and I was, I was very conflicted because I could see the cartoons of the American Indians with shovels, saying that they were going to go excavate in uh, Arlington National Cemetery. You know, I kind right. of, I got the humor of that, and my archaeology professors couldn't really understand how, if I were an archaeologist, I could believe that American Indians had a right to control archaeology. You know, it was either right. Right. one or the other. They really didn't think anyone could be both. So... Um, Actually, I went to Southern Methodist because I wanted to work in the old world. Um, that way, I could didn't have to excavate American Indian human remains, and you know, it was sort of a, a tongue-in-cheek joke that I could go over there and excavate their ancestors. Um, some of the archaeologists got it; others didn't. But you know, it was it was an escape. It was a way out. Uh, that way, I didn't have to worry about being called a grave digger here. Because I could say, well, I'm not working here. I, I'm working in in France or, or Africa. And so, so you move along this way, but eventually you had to come back to the fact that here you are a Native American, and these these issues are only getting stronger and stronger as uh, as Native American consciousness in this sphere sort of sort of starts to blossom in the in the seventies, right? Exactly, exactly. In, in the 70s and, and 80s, I, I did some work in the Southwest, and many of the people I spoke with there had concerns about archaeologists. They talked about the, the issues of, well, who really owns the, the material culture? Should it be the ancestors or the academics, or should it be descendants? Or uh, So the American Indian voice was getting stronger. They were trying to find a way into the discipline um, without actually trying to either get muzzled or trying to muzzle the discipline itself. Joe, is there any particular event or any particular period where you think it, uh, Native American consciousness in archaeology made a monumental or a quantum step forward? Um, I would say I, I would have to... Yes. Um, 
1971, uh, the Iowa Highway Department uncovered a, a, a long-lost cemetery. There were 27 people buried in that cemetery. 26 were basically of European descent, and one of the individuals buried in that same cemetery was found to be, they thought was an Indian woman because she had beads, she had uh, brass rings, she had everything that made them think that she was an American Indian. The uh, Iowa Department of Transportation reburied 26, those 26 with European descent, and sent the Indian girl to the Historical Society. Wow. Yeah, Maria Pearsons, who was a, a, um, an American Indian woman in the area, started a movement that resulted in 1976 with Iowa passing the United States' first reburial law. Uh, Dwayne King, who was an archaeologist, worked with Maria on getting it done. I'm sorry, it was Dwayne Anderson, the archaeologist. Dwayne Anderson, right, right, yeah, right. And they got it done, they got it passed. At that time, Archaeologists were saying to Duane, how can you do this? You're, you're giving away the resource. You're, you're setting a dangerous precedent. And, and Duane said, well, you know, this is only right. This person was afforded a Christian burial in a Christian cemetery, and he really felt that it was wrong that this person get sent to the, the museum and, instead of reburied. So that probably set the precedent for really what sort of snowballed into the, the legal situation that American Indians and, and archaeologists sometimes face uh, with museums today. And so at this point, you're in your education as these things are going on. I mean, this is early on. You're finishing your Ph.D. when? Well, I, I finished my M.A. in 1977, um, then sort of... When I went to work for the Heritage Conservation Recreation Services in Atlanta, uh, worked there for a couple of years, came back, did private consulting, uh, had a life, had a family, and then really I I went back and completed my Ph.D. in 1994. <laughs> oh, I didn't realize there was that long gap. Okay, so but you were working. I remember you worked for the Park Service for a while, yes, right? Yes. Okay. And then as this was going on, I remember your role got increasingly significant because you were the Native American professional and expert as the early days prelim preliminary to NAGPRA right. were, were, were evolving. How did your perspective change at that point in time? And how did you see events developing from having a foot in both doors in the academic sector and the professional sector together and then as a native american how did how did how did you reconcile that and and where where was your thinking moving at that point in time well i think that the most important thing that probably helped me reconcile all this was as a result of the american indian religious freedom act of 1978 in as part of that the American Indian Religious Freedom Act, or ERFA, as it was called, the federal agencies were required to give a, a report to Congress that documented how their policies impacted the practice of American Indian religious freedom 
in the United States. So they, we held, I say they or we, we held 10 consultations around the United States in the Northwest, in the Southwest, here in Oklahoma, the Southeast, Northeast, Alaska, Hawaii, uh, Midwest, where we took testimony from American Indians about federal policies. The, looking back over that time, I can see that most of the issues had to deal with the transportation and uh, ownership of sacred objects like feathers and medicine bundles, those sorts of things. It was about the protection of sacred sites, and at that time, uh, archaeological sites to American Indian groups were sacred sites. It was about access and control of human remains. So really the, the precursor for the repatriation laws of 1989 and 1990 can be found right there in that American Indian Religious Freedom Act. And I was one of the representatives of the um, Department of the Interior to attend those consultations. So I got to see firsthand the true passion that many of these people who were giving their testimony to this panel had for each one of these issues. It wasn't just a, a political talking point. It was something that they really felt that need to protect for their children and their children's children. So it was, you could see that it was a calling to them and that it wasn't just something to, to try to make the newspapers or to try to influence just little bitty things. And so this is basically sort of leading into NAGPRA, right? I mean, at this point. It, it did. It did. It was, well, that was, uh, the report was issued to, to Congress in 19, I think, 1980, perhaps. And, of course, even though it was 10 years from that time until the passage of, of NAGPRA, it was a time that the Native American Rights Fund took to, to develop its um, its web of contacts. In 1980, Nebraska start, passed a burial law, uh, and these state laws kept changing the way archaeologists were having to work within limited territories. But it basically it culminated in, in 1989 with the passage of the National Museum of the American Indian Act, which really set forth policies toward repatriation and then became nationally uh, accepted in 1990 with the passage of the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. And, and we will get back with Joe Watkins on the emergence and significance of NAGPRA after these words. Stay tuned. Racism. Healing. Oneness of humankind. It is time to join millions of people all over the world who openly talk about racial healing. Some of us are not sure how to tread when discussing race and culture. Until now. Tune in to A Safe Place to Talk About Race with host Sharon E. Davis. Engage with experts and notables. Have a question but are not sure how to ask it? Test it out with our show. It's a safe harbor to explore views and situations that we face every day. 
A Safe Place to Talk About Race airs live every Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you ever wanted to ask a direct question to a private investigator? If so, you'll want to listen for the Private Eye Nightline with private investigator John Siakio. John and his guest experts will answer your questions about infidelity, drug issues, custody, restraining orders, and more. Sometimes there are sensitive issues involving a family member or other loved one. We're here to help. The Private Eye Nightline is broadcast live every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and we're back with our third segment of the program, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, uh, an especially fitting title for our present program. I am uh, discussing issues of Native American heritage and archaeological preservation, and especially the uh, increasing role of Native Americans in um, archaeology and historic preservation since the 1990s. The seminal piece of legislation, I think, that that accommodates and, and takes into account the Native American pres- uh, perspective is, of course, NAGPRA. And Joe Watkins was an instrumental figure in developing um, programs and uh, raising consciousness for NAGPRA when it was enacted in 1991, I believe. Joe, why don't you talk a little bit about NAGPRA and how it has cha- how it evolved and how it has subsequently changed the face of archaeology in North America? Okay. Excuse me. Yeah, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act really has changed the face of archaeology in North America. What it has done is required that museums and federal agencies which have collections that have um, human remains, um, Native American sacred objects, Native American objects of Native American cultural patrimony, and funerary objects, how they interact with American Indian groups. Now, NAGPRA requires that these agencies and museums, if they receive at least even one dollar of federal funds, consult with tribes about either returning these objects to the federally recognized tribes to which they belong, or at least communicating with the tribes and giving the tribes the opportunity to um, have a say in how those materials are either maintained in the collections or, or put back and protected. Really what it did was it required archaeologists and museum professionals to think about how the practice of archaeology impacts contemporary populations. In the past, archaeologists didn't really take into consideration contemporary populations. They conveniently 
separated the archaeological materials from from living people. So NAGPRA and the National Museum of the American Indian Act kind of forced them to, to open their eyes and see that living populations had just as much concern about materials from the past as archaeologists did. Um, there was a conflict, of course, because archaeologists were afraid that repatriation would be the death of archaeology. Uh, Clem Meehan, who was a very outspoken opponent of repatriation in the 90s and really wrote it strongly and heavily against it, saying that the future would condemn archaeologists of the 20th century for giving away control of the past. Um, American Indian groups, on the other hand, were saying, well, this was a first step forward. It was a way of acknowledging that the past has very different meanings to the people of the present, and that it the past is still a part of the present as well as a part of the future. So it really created, I think, a mechanism whereby each group could talk to the other one and at least feel that they could be heard, whether or not if they were listened to or not, at least they had the opportunity to um, make the point known. And and so that's where we are right now. Obviously, there's a tremendous room. There's tremendous room for conflict here. There have been a lot of issues pitting sort of the straight science, traditional, uh, for lack of a better word, Western civilization approach to the past versus the Native American approach, which is clearly not a single approach, but nevertheless views religion certainly in a non-Western context. And in that sense, Joe, how do you see resolution between these two perspectives, the sort of pure science perspective in which uh, remains should be studied from physical anthropological perspectives, from archaeological perspectives, and a more, let's call it a pure Native American perspective in which sort of a holistic view is, is brought to the, to the fore and where it's not necessary or absolutely imperative to actually study yet another body or yet another uh, skeleton for, for purely scientific uh, purposes. How do we reconcile this, and where are we going in this controversy as someone who's grown up in both worlds? Well, I think it is difficult to reconcile when one gets to either extreme. If you get to the extreme that, well, science is the only true way that we can know nature, then um, I think those sorts of people operate with blinders on. And when we get to the other extreme with American Indian perspectives that says science is not good for anything and it can't tell us anything about the past, well, I think the people that we deal with or can work better with are the 80 to 90 percent of the people who are in the middle. Right. I think everyone understands that too much reliance on science kind of prevents us from really understanding what's happening around us. Um, many American Indians accept that science has a place in everyday life, but they also accept that there are different ways of knowing about nature than just science. Um, and 
And it's the same issue that, that Western religionists put themselves into. I mean, a lot of people accept science and yet have faith and yet have belief. And so you're basically saying we have to look at that middle where, where people make accommodation for both perspectives, right? Exactly. And, and there are some American Indian groups who, you know, really are involved in archaeology. Um, in 1992, the uh, Congress, um, amended the National Historic Preservation Act to allow tribes to take over certain aspects of the State Historic Preservation Officers. In 1996, there were were 12 tribes. Now there are more than 125 tribes who are actively taking or taking an active role in the practice of archaeology on their lands. And so it's not just archaeology or it's not archaeology as, as a bad thing. But really, many tribes are adapting archaeology and the archaeological processes and the historic preservation processes to protect the, the material cultural manifestations of, of their past. So American Indians are getting involved in archaeology. Uh, now there are probably... I don't know what the latest count, maybe 18 to 20 American Indians with PhDs in archaeology. Um, there was a recent MacArthur, MacArthur fellow, uh, Finn Hawkinson, um, who um, lives on Kodiak Island in Alaska, and he's an archaeologist. He is, but he's giving so much back to his, his culture, his local group, that He's been recognized as one of the MacArthur geniuses, you know. So there are American Indians getting very strongly involved in archaeology and trying to do the same. They're trying to help bring bring archaeology into a Native American perspective and bring a Native American perspective to archaeology. Now, you've done the same. Obviously, I know you've gone into Native American communities to try to explain the role of archaeology and, and how, how have you been able to communicate the message as a person, again, who's grown up with a very formal archaeological training with a PhD and the entire trajectory of your career, and yet, nevertheless, you maintain a connection to your, your heritage. How have you done that? Well, I, I find it easy by going out and, and talking to people, telling them my history, telling them about my my background, my family heritage, and letting them know that I don't believe that archaeology is the only way to know the past. I try to let students and children recognize that archaeology is one way of knowing, oral history is another way of knowing, that tradition and the academy don't have to be a, a one or the other, that uh, I try to tell them that by writing, by communicating, all you can do is help other people better understand what issues are important both to the tribes and to the individual. Um, there have been times that I've, I remember one of my first presentations, uh, a young woman stood up in the back and asked if I had to be an atheist to be an archaeologist. Uh, <laughs> Because That's a tough one. Yeah, it is. It, this was in 1978. It was like, okay, well, n- <laughs> no, but, uh, you know, it does take some effort. It's it's no more than asking a, a scientist if they can be a Catholic or not. It's, it's 
you know, right. again, one can compartmentalize when one has to, but I kept telling people the important thing is to do what you believe is important to yourself and to your culture. If your tribe will support you being an archaeologist, then very definitely learn the archaeological method and theory and then learn how to adapt it to be beneficial to your own tribe. And, and there are many people who are doing that now and doing it very well. And we're seeing more and more Native American involvement, obviously, in the academic world as well as in the consulting world, correct? Exactly, exactly. There are more um, professors in anthropology at Indiana and Michigan, at Stanford, all throughout the United States. We're getting PhDs who are working for um, Smithsonian Institution looking at biological anthropology and its relationships with, with people. We're getting a lot of uh, consultants who are involved who are being able to help act as a liaison between federal agencies who are required by federal mandates to do archaeology with the tribes on whose land or whose archaeological material culture those individuals are working. So we're, we're learning how to consult with tribes in order to to better explain what it is we are doing and to help tribes better explain to the archaeologists what sorts of products and what sorts of concerns they have about those federal undertakings. And we'll be back with a final segment in our interview with Dr. Joe Watkins after these words. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Ever wondered what private investigators really do and how they go about solving cases? Each week, P.I.'s Declassified gives a glimpse into this little-known world. Join your host, Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator, in conversations with detectives and experts in the field. False confessions, forensic evidence, finding missing persons, exposing fraud, exonerating the innocent. All areas that Francie and her guests will cover, and have they got stories to tell. Tune in and call in to the live show Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on Voice America Variety. So are you connected to the meaning of your life? Are your relationships and career satisfying and fulfilling? How about your parenting? Are you feeling some challenges there? Listen for He Said, She Said every week with husband and wife, Jonathan Nadelman and Carrie Dino. In addition to being married and the parents of a spirited daughter, Carrie and Jonathan share over 40 years of clinical experience as psychotherapists and want to hear all about the challenges you're facing. He Said, She Said airs live Fridays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. 
We're back. This is Joe Schuldenrein with my uh, special guest, Dr. Joe Watkins, uh, who is discussing uh, indigenous peoples, Native Americans, and the increasing consciousness and contribution of indigenous groups to uh, the archaeological discourse, if we might put it that way. Joe, I know you have been involved in expanding the message of Native Americans and, indig- and indigenous populations all over the world. How do you see the voice of indigenous peoples expressing themselves um, in, in archaeology and in general heritage studies and, and heritage consciousness in other countries? And what's your experience with that? Well, there's, <clears throat> I'm finding that all over the, the the world, those indigenous populations are taking a very active role in how their heritage and their culture is being depicted. Um, I've done some work in the Northern Territory of Australia and in New Zealand, and those groups that I've worked with there recognize that heritage is extremely important, um, especially now with heritage tourism that you know, the United Nations, UNESCO has said heritage tourism probably can save Africa, um, where the the indigenous populations can almost earn more more money by re-becoming traditional, um, and yet that heritage is uniquely marketable because those people understand it. Uh, in Japan, the Ainu that was recently recognized as Japan's indigenous population. And that's an extremely important thing because for the last hundred years, Japan has said we are a single culture. We are one group. We're all Japanese. There are no indigenous people. There never have been. They're extinct. And just as recently as 2006, they said, no, we now recognize that the Ainu have continued to exist, and they are an indigenous population. They are just now taking their place on the indigenous uh, global stage. And so in that regard, I, I find it extremely gratifying to be able to talk to these groups about what the history and the struggle that American Indians have had here in North America. The, the Ainu are asking for help in trying to establish ideas about membership, about how to establish who belongs to what group, how they can go about getting a more active voice in the depiction of their past. Um, and so it's, it, it's fun to watch this group just almost being born, if you will, at least in terms of an academic perspective. Um, so, one of the things so- that we've been looking at is what we call the Global Indigenous School of Thought, or the gist of things, to try to gain a, an understanding of how indigenous people interact with nature, view nature, interact with heritage, with the, the past, with the present, and what, if any, um, foundations that we can talk about as a global indigenous perspective on on science, on repatriation, on archaeology, on the past, on the present, on the future, all of these things. So it's, it's an exciting time 
to to be able to to travel to these places and to talk to these people who are actively involved in it. So what you're seeing, saying basically is that globalization as, as a phenomenon, which a lot of people are very upset about, I think, it's an inevitability, I think we agree on that, but it does provide a mechanism for breaking down these traditional barriers uh, in, 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 in uh, cultural development and in cultural recognition where all of a sudden from country to country you're starting to see indigenous people sort of, in a sense, flexing their muscles and, and coming uh, and, and raising their own consciousness uh, in, the greater com- in the greater communities, which uh, seems to be a, a phenomenal development and one of the things we can probably be proud of as this world gets so complicated and, and dreary in many other ways, correct? Exactly. It's the ability of indigenous populations to communicate with each other with almost an immediacy that, that is helping this occur. It's interesting. We can... I can write an email to someone, to a Sami person in, uh, in Tromso, and they can communicate with someone, an Ainu person in Hokkaido, who can communicate with a Maori archaeologist in Wellington, and who can email someone over in Adelaide, and they can have a conversation, an immediate conversation, about the global practice of archaeology and how it relates to um, indigenous heritage. It's not something that requires a three-day letter and then a week's response and then to where you end up with an event, you know, six months after the fact. It's the immediacy of information availability that has made this at least possible. But it's it's the desire of the indigenous populations to take an active role in it that has made it happen. It's kind of a unique and ironic uh, marriage of technology and indigenous populations <laughs> spreading their word through the highest tech that there is, really. If it you is. Think of that. And, and it's you know, a phenomenal the thing. The only thing that's really slowing things down is the lack of, a, of good Internet access in, uh, in Africa and some parts of South America. Other than that, with the availability of the internet people are seeing what's going on elsewhere and they can key into it and so it's not like anyone's really living in the dark ages anymore that's true and uh, of course we now have the world archaeological congress that's moving in the direction of trying to bring all these voices these disparate voices under a common common tent if you will yes. to to exchange information to understand what's going on in individual countries and to sort of spread the word about how archaeology and and the cultural awareness certainly can be joined at the hip if that's done properly and with I suspect with the empowerment of more indigenous peoples in archaeological communities worldwide that message is getting through it is. It's, it's getting through quickly, and it's getting through powerfully. It's, there are some political, political aspects of it that are both good and bad, as with any organization of, of more than three people. Um, occasionally there are disagreements, but it is focusing on making archaeology aware of the social impact that it has and how it can be done for the benefit of indigenous populations rather than just for the benefit of indigenous practitioners or, um, I'm sorry, individual practitioners and individual academicians. 
And and those of us like you and me who've been around a long enough time to 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 really have grown up in a world where we never thought that this kind of consciousness and awareness, not to mention communication, could be possible. And now it's all breaking down in 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 such short periods of time because of technology and because of globalization. We're seeing these pro- the progress is just enormous. It is. It's so drastic. When I think about how oh, 10 years ago, well, I guess 20 years ago now, that things were so slow that telex was state-of-the-art and fax, people used to gather around a fax machine, watch a letter come out. That's, it's so different now. <laughs> and it has so much, pol- so much in the way of po- geopolitical impact because people are getting together, they're getting organized, they're starting to see that they have influence and they affect actually the political, economical and, and social situations in which they're involved. And the archaeology just benefits from it because the record gets so much more complete. Exactly. And and once we start once we started including the indigenous voice, we started gaining much more information about the the archaeological record than we ever could have gained without that voice. And where do you see the major progress and where do you see sort of the major hindrances at this point going forward between indigenous communities, archaeology and politics uh, as we weave them together as they inevitably are? Where, where are we making progress and where do we still have a long way to go? Well, I think that the, the progress that I see is the direct involvement of archaeologists with indigenous communities. So we're getting archaeologists who are working with the community and not just studying the community. So that's a very positive thing. It also gives the indigenous community access to information that it wouldn't have otherwise in terms of either the, the culture of the past, the, uh, much of the economies of the past, how they survived, what the technologies were. So it's more than just uh, an esoteric glimpse at how their ancestors lived. I think probably where I see the problems arising is that the academy is still moving a little bit further away from the applied and the the cultural groups in that there are some people within the academy who really still see the, the sacrosanct practice of science as being the most important thing. And so they're still a little insulated from the social impacts of archaeology and are not quite aware that they need to be changing. I, but perhaps within the next generation or two, um, the Academy will realize that it, it needs to move beyond just the ivory tower and start producing materials that are really and truly beneficial to the, the people that they're studying and working with. And and on that, that note, I think we're going to have to wrap it up. Joe, you brought up a great point how, in a very ironic sense, the Academy is, in a way, lagging behind the applied world. Exactly. And in, in where our profession is going. And that is the fodder of another show. And hopefully we will bring Joe Watkins back again to talk with us and a number of other people on this very, very uh, emerging and significant conflict between the academy and the applied world in archaeology. It's something that's very serious at this point in our profession. And uh, we will bring that together at another time. Joe, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for and, having me. Uh, And uh, we are signing off, and uh, we will be with you again next week. Thank you. 
Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.